Hello and welcome. It is Kate. Yeah. And Mags. <laughs> and welcome back to our podcast, Lotus, where we discuss everything from periods to uteruses to ovaries and everything and anything related to Women Plus's reproductive health. Yes. Thanks, Kate. So yeah, we just wanted to discuss and start by discussing our couple of updates regarding the release of our app. Hopefully we'll be coming out in the next few months um, and that we've been really fortunate to add a few team members, particularly to our app development team. Uh, their names are Claudia and Georgina, aka Gigi, uh, who are both helping us to work toward um, getting our app ready for launch. So just wanted to shout out to them yes. and thank them for getting us to where we want to go. Um, and for another update, we've been working on getting new grants from Harvard and other accelerators, and we're getting a lot closer to the eventual launch of our app at the start of September. So we're super excited to start embarking on user testing, and we're really hoping to get everyone from our community to be able to try out the app. So make sure to follow us on Instagram at lotus.health.app to stay updated on all our progress. Yay! All right. Well, today we have a very, very awesome guest here with us, and we're going to be talking about a condition that approximately affects roughly 1 in 10 people assigned female at birth. So here with us, we have Jandra Mueller, who is a pelvic floor physical therapist and integrative nutritionist who's working on changing the care and approach to endometriosis. She is also a host on her own podcast, I Care Better, Endometriosis Unplugged, where she dives into different elements of the disease to ultimately shed greater light on the issues, treatments, and really just advocacy of endometriosis as a whole. So Jandra, we're so happy and excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing a bit of your insight. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is always fun to do, to talk about all things women's health. Um, there's a lot to Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Yeah, and I think kind of as we've noticed, the more episodes we do, the more people we come in contact with, you really just realize how big this network is. And, you know, just thinking from like a year ago, my own perspective, thinking that everything was so small and so narrow and that there weren't people really to talk to. But now that we've really opened this door, it's like left and right. I feel totally. like we're meeting these awesome people and it's just crazy how that can change. Yeah. And sadly that there's so many people dealing with issues or have been affected and how little we've come in the landscape of treatment of these mm -hmm. different conditions. But so many people that you talk to have stories. It's exactly. it's crazy. I, I I agree, and it's the sad realization to you know as you start talking more and more that there really there are so many people out there. But if you never talk about it, you never would have known. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Um, but yeah, so glad to have you, Jandra. So kind of on that note, you know, Jandra, you just mentioned like there are so many stories that are out there and people have all of these different experiences. And I think that's what's been so awesome about our Lotus Ventures, just hearing all these stories and really trying to make a change in the dialogue. So I know you are the host of your own podcast. And so I've listened to a few of your episodes before. And immediately once I kind of heard about you and your background and your backstory, I just knew that I needed to connect you really just to have a conversation about Women Plus's reproductive health and ultimately endometriosis. And I'm so excited I got to connect you with Mags and Kira and have all of us here today. And you're so knowledgeable, both personally and professionally. And uh, we're really just grateful that you're kind of taking time to speak to us today. 
So <laughs> with that, I think maybe it would be helpful for all of us just to orient ourselves. And would you mind sharing a little bit about your personal experience with endometriosis before we kind of dive into the more professional medical side of it? Sure. And I will try to keep everything succinct because <laughs> it's sort of all over the place which is endometriosis mm -hmm. essentially. So mm -hmm. I'll start from the beginning, though I didn't put these pieces together until later on. But when I was about 13 or so, I don't really remember when I started my period. So it was probably not that eventful, essentially. I do remember being just curled over in the bathtub at one point. And I don't remember if it was on my period. I don't think it was. Mm -hmm. I think it was more around ovulation. I had already started my period though, and I couldn't move. I was in severe pain. And as a 13 year old, it was scary. I thought I was, I don't know that I thought at that point that I was dying, but I, I couldn't get out of the fetal position. And my mom and my brother had to get me out of the bathtub and put me into the car and take me to the emergency room. And that was the first of several ER visits due to this. And now I know what that is. But essentially, everything was normal. And they asked about my menstrual cycle to my mom, I'm assuming, because they said, I think she ruptured a cyst. You should take her to a gynecologist and get her on birth control. And that's what she did. And I feel like it was relatively soon after that incident that I was at the gynecologist talking about birth control pills, which I think at the time I was like, ooh, this is kind of cool. I get to be on, I mean, had no idea, was not sexually mm -hmm. active, but it was sort of the secretive thing, but kind of exciting at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I started taking these pills and I don't really remember much after that as far as my period went. Fast forward. <laughs> Well, I, I should mention during that time, what I do remember experiencing was these really severe GI mm. attacks where we go to the mall and maybe it was due to just kind of crappy food. But I remember just getting these attacks where it kind of felt like the pain I had, but it in my mind, I was like, I have to like go to the bathroom and I have to have a bathroom right now. And I would just pretend it wasn't happening, mm -hmm. I guess. I wasn't telling anyone. And I soon after would have a bowel movement and then just go on like nothing happened. I do remember that happening often, huh. maybe wow. weekly for wow. a long time. So during the next, I would say maybe 10 years or so, I don't remember really anything like that. I had been on several different pills, the mm -hmm. ring, all sorts of birth control until I was about 20. And then it affected me severely as far as like mood, weight gain, you know, all the things why people go off of birth control. But I started dating. I started my first more real relationship and I was sexually active. So I needed contraceptive. So I went to my doctor and she said, well, we can do an IUD. I think the Mirena had just come out at that point and no big deal. It's super easy. I was like, this is amazing. Uh, it was, it was definitely a big deal. It was, extraordinarily painful to get that inserted. I went home and was just crying. I remember watching Pitch oh. Perfect, that's my go-to <laughs> And just crying and how much like cramping and pain I had, but it was just for that day. I didn't have a period for the next four years, wow. actually. Oh, wow. And talk yeah. about so, like effects on your body. I mean, this could be a whole nother conversation, but like, I don't know. Did your doctor ever mention that that could be 
a consequence of an IUD? So there's no, the thing with the IUD, and actually the IUD worked really well Mm. for me on all fronts. I didn't have side effects aside from not bleeding, which at that point in your early 20s, you're like, sweet, I was living in high baby suits and not worried about anything. But yes, it's important because your period, and we can talk about this a little bit later, is really a vital Mm -hmm. sign. So you understand your health. The thing with IUDs, though, that's different than systemic birth control is that with an IUD, you actually are cycling still. You may stop ovulating for a short time, research says maybe up to a year, but about 80-85% of people with IUDs actually regain ovulation. You just don't actually have bleeding to mm. following that. So out of all the birth controls, it it does not come without side effects, but systemically and overall, people do really well with them because you're actually still making your own hormones. And if you're keeping track of different things in your cycle, you are still ovulating and making your own hormones. Mm. So it's actually just Mm. localized. So for contraception, it's actually the most effective contraception aside from, you know, getting sterilization essentially, or not having sex. So Mm. for my purposes, it was great. But I didn't know that you weren't ovulating. I didn't know that I was actually still having a cycle. I didn't know any of that Mm -hmm. at that time. I didn't even know that that was important to know at that time. So after my second one, about two and a half years in, around the same time, I had that recurrent pain again that felt like a ruptured cyst. I did not go to the ER at that point, but I was working in a women's health clinic at that time, getting into public health. And the ultrasound tech she just looked at, she she gave me an ultrasound and then the radiologist looked at it and was like, well, you have some cyst, you know, maybe, maybe it's just the IUD, it's malfunctioning, try to go on birth control as well and see if that helps. And if so, get the IUD out, get another one. So I went back on birth control. With in addition to which the was IUD. A terrible mistake. Okay. In addition to the IUD. Okay. Don't right. do that. <laughs> right. I was gonna say I feel like that's so, not really common to hear, but okay. <laughs> no. Doctors will try that in people with endo to control kind of both levels of things, okay. but you shouldn't really mm-hmm. do that. Shortly after I got it out, but at the same time that was happening, I was constipated for about three months. I did a colonoscopy, nothing was found. Doing the colonoscopy and the prep did kind of reset my GI system enough to where I was going to the bathroom, but it didn't take away a lot of these other symptoms I was having. So fast forward to me moving to LA for the job that I have now. I was in their West LA office with Pelvic Health and Rehab Center. My career-wise, I had shifted from orthopedics into kind of women's health, treating women with breast cancer and some pelvic health as far as pregnancy, postpartum, prolapse, incontinence, not a lot of pain. But at that time, I didn't know what, I knew that I didn't know something. So this this job was really providing what I was missing, essentially. It was really focused on complex chronic pelvic pain with mentorship. So I moved there. And within the first couple of months, we had an in-service from this urologist who is a sex med doctor. And he gave this in-service about how birth control can cause vulvodynia or something more specific called vestibulodynia, which presents essentially as painful sex, uh, lubrication issues. 
Some people will get diagnosed with interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome because of the effect of birth control on the vulvar tissues. You have to have a genetic predisposition, but it affects many, many people. And it's probably the most common reason for painful intercourse and it's insertional pain. And that's crazy to me to think about because I have never once heard of that condition, disease. And I've seen, I mean, between the three of us, we've seen a ton of gynecologists. We've seen a ton of people in the women's health area for our own conditions. And I've had no idea that that's, like, I've just never heard of that, ever. Yeah. Neither did I until that in-service. I literally stopped my pill that day. I was Um, like, Josh, can I just stop this? He's like, yeah. (laughs) It is shocking why gynecologists do not know about this. You would think that they are the one kind of group practice that would know this. So I had been on birth control from that point systemically from 13 to 20. I didn't, I wasn't sexually active until I was 19. So for me, that was my baseline. And luckily I didn't have severe pain or anything like that. Though when I got off the birth control and got treated, I was like, oh, this is how sex is supposed to be. I had no idea that the sex that I was having for, I think I was 29 at that point, 30 for 10 years was not how it was supposed to be. And it's so hard, of course, when you're a 19 year old to like, who are you asking? Like, is this how it's supposed to feel? Like, where are you going to say, is this right? And Mm. to even know if it is right, like you yourself have no idea. It's your only experience. So that's crazy to hear. So during this time, sorry, I'm paralleling a lot of these (laughs) things that were happening at the same time. Um, I was still trying to figure out what the heck was going on. At this point, it was more GI-related symptoms. I was off birth control. I went back to an IUD. And this time, I was having more regular bleeding. It was very light. But I was still having all these GI issues. And that symptom of that kind of, oh, my gosh, pain followed by a bowel movement started coming back pretty regularly. Mm. So there was a day where I thought I had a UTI. So I took Macrovid. And the day after I was having a lot of like fever, chills, I drove home and I remember telling my boss, I don't really feel very good. I got home and was having this right lower quadrant pain. I was having other abdominal pain, nausea, a low grade fever. And she was like, you need to go to the ER. You might have appendicitis. So I Ubered to the the ER and my fever wasn't going down. I was in severe pain. I kind of felt like they were like, okay, this, you know, bladder UTI, this girl's in here, period pain. They did a scan. I did not have appendicitis. They ended up doing a pelvic exam and they were like, well, we think you ruptured a cyst. Shocker. However, the pain was pretty excruciating unless I was hitting that morphing button. As soon as it would wear off, my fever would spike back up. And because of the intractable pain and because my fever wasn't breaking, they admitted me. I was in there for four days, saw probably every specialist you could possibly see in the hospital. On the CT scan, they... They didn't find appendicitis, but they did see some weird thing on my liver, which then led to another test where they found something else. And just that, it just Mm -hmm. snowballed. So Mm -hmm. at that point, I was having trouble breathing. I had a a partial lung collapse. My my O2 was just dropping. The MRIs, they were pulling me out. All these just crazy random things were happening. Yeah, at the end of the day, they were like, well... We, you just probably had some virus and we just got to treat it and go see your OBGYN, you know, at the end. They're like, we don't know. Oh my so gosh. that was helpful. 
And it was actually a patient of mine who I was treating who had endo and had a, a surgery already. When I came back to work, she's like, are you okay? You know, do you think that this could be endo? Do you think you have it? I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, I've never really had painful periods or heavy periods because at that point, that was what I knew to be endometriosis. That's what I saw in my patients. Mm-hmm. But my sister, who's four years younger, she got clinically diagnosed at 13 and she had classic symptoms, you know, missing, missing school, really severe mm-hmm. monthly pain, heavy periods, clotting. So for me, I didn't think anything reached out to a doctor who did specialize, who had moved from New York to LA, who I'd been working with. And she was so great. She was on my podcast recently. And I said, I'm having all these GI symptoms and some other things. Could this be endo? And she said, absolutely. This oh is endo. Wow. So, and it was after, <laughs> after really like more than 10 years of not knowing. That is, that is crazy. Yeah. And and I'm thinking too, I wonder, and I'm sure you'll touch on this, just the way that your pills or whether you're on IUD was kind of masking or masking all of the symptoms you might have been having had you not been on the pill or on an IUD. And then maybe this could have been figured out sooner and treatment could have happened far, far sooner. So I'm curious to hear about that as well. What you just said is so important. First line therapies for endometriosis are birth control pills. And they are proposed as a solution or a treatment for endometriosis. They Mm, absolutely are not. (laughs) They do mask. I was probably one of the lucky ones that did respond Mm. well. About 60% do respond well to Mm. these treatments. The issue is it's not a treatment. It's not told to you that it's not a treatment. So this disease still progresses despite you not having symptoms. Some people may choose that and that's okay, but it's a lack of informed consent. Mm -hmm. This is awful. And do you feel like just from what you've seen professionally are for a lot of women plus as health conditions is birth control always seen as the first line option? Mm -hmm. Uh, Some doctors are better. Yeah. Some doctors are better than others and have that conversation. You know, we could use this, especially if you're a teenager because Mm -hmm. You may not be ready to have surgery yet. It may not work with your Mm -hmm. school or sports schedule. You may be concentrating on doing applications to get into college. So it may not be the right time. Mm -hmm. The the difference is, is you say, you know, you need surgery, but until you're ready, let's try this birth control to see if it will help with your symptoms to get you through the next year or two years until you're ready to have surgery. That's a very Mm -hmm. different conversation. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I'll, I'll quickly sum up the next few parts. So the doctor that I had been, that I went to right after the hospital, the Eurogyne, she knew her place as far as endometriosis was concerned. She said, I'm not a specialist. I do do the surgeries. I knew enough to say, okay, let's try it. Only excise or remove the lesions that you see and just take a lot of pictures. Like, I'm fine if you go in and you're not comfortable removing anything. I just want to know. So that's what we did. Well, I should back up and say that prior to that, I had a conversation about this fluid that they found during the ultrasound. And it seemed consistent that every time I was having these issues, every time I had an ultrasound, they would find this fluid behind Mm -hmm. my uterus. So I assumed that's why they knew I ruptured a cyst. At that point, I was like, how do they know that I ruptured a cyst if it ruptured? (laughs) Like, what are they looking at? So I did some research and I found this one article that said 
ultrasound findings for endometriosis. And it, I think there was a paragraph and it said, nonspecific fluid behind the uterus may be a sign of endometriosis. That was one article. It yeah. just goes, that it's just like wild. so clear that women's health research is so under-researched and that if there's such little information out there, you have gone more than 10 years seeing this fluid and not even being able to point to what that might mean. Oh my gosh. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So I went into surgery and she went in and said, your left uterosacral ligament looked really odd. We took a biopsy and we took a sample of the fluid. Hmm. The pathology report, the uterosacral ligament came back as in the fluid, it said cells consistent with endometriosis. Mm. I was still not given a diagnosis of endometriosis after that. Took Interesting. Yeah. What? Yeah. It, because there was not technically like a histological sample of okay. tissue despite the fluid. So fast forward, March 2018, that was in November 2017. I had my first excision surgery mm -hmm. with the specialist who found several areas, many of which were fibro-inflammatory, fibro, fibro, blah, 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 blah. A few samples said, you know, consistent with endometriosis. So she diagnosed me and I felt significantly better. So, so now I'll talk about what endometriosis is. So endometriosis, you'll find often the definition online that says endometrium tissue that's outside of the uterus, right. it's a gynecological disease. That is not accurate. What endometriosis really is, and it's shifted in the language the last several years to really reflect more of what it truly is. So it's, a, it, it's really a heterogeneous disease that's immune and inflammatory in nature. So it, it's an immune system mm -hmm. issue, an inflammatory issue essentially, where tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus is found outside of the uterus, mm -hmm. most commonly in the abdominopelvic cavity, but it can be found elsewhere. The next site is oftentimes the thoracic cavity, so the diaphragm and the lungs, but it has been found in every organ wow. in the body. And mm -hmm. it has been found in men. It's been found in men. Interesting. I guess, so there's no pathological connection to hormones that are in people with uteruses and ovaries. So it is mediated by estrogen. Okay. And that's why it's considered for so many a gynecologic disease. Yes, estrogen influences it, but it's not the whole picture. And men have estrogen too. Right. And mm -hmm. so th that's the thought. So there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of strong opinions, but it transitions from an endometrial cell to an endometrial-like cell, implants, grows its own nerve supply, it grows its own blood vessels and creates pain, dysfunction, a cytokine storm essentially, which is a number of inflammatory mediators. What we do know is that there is a huge genetic component. Wow. And if you start to talk to people that have endo and you start to ask them about their family history, our generation, most of the time, parents are like, yeah, I had that too. You just deal with it. So it's normalized because they had it too. And probably their mm -hmm. grandma had it too. I think it was during my second surgery, which was my first excision surgery. My mom said, oh, did I ever tell you I had a hysterectomy at 31? No. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Literally, like, I think right before I was going into the operating room. 
No, that would have been really good to know. Wow. It's interesting that in medical histories, that was not kind of brought up or even a question that was asked and maybe something you didn't know you should have asked or your mom didn't know she should have told you. It should have been a little more clear. And I... And I think on that note, Mags, obviously Women Plus's health is private and it can be something that's a little bit private to talk about. But at the same time, it's become normalized that it should be private and it should be kept secret and it shouldn't be something that should come up in a family history, you know, diagnosis because it's not, you know, it's not something you should openly be sharing. But at the same time, I mean, this is so important. And I think we do see this kind of like, at odds situation in medicine where there's this kind of like social normality of, you know, not speaking about it, especially in older generations. And then this kind of scientific medical need to know what has happened in past generations, because that could really inform your health and be super helpful for a diagnosis. And I think knowing your sister has it, it's like, oh my gosh, all these connections have now been made. Um, And that, that could have just helped get you to this point so much quicker. So I think, you know, the social aspect is really important to start breaking down these barriers again and again. We keep seeing that this is not only helpful, you know, societally, but for real medicine, for, for a diagnosis, I think that's incredibly powerful to Mm. remember. Yes. It's, it's crazy. So I ask all my patients who are, kind of like on the fence is this really endo i asked them have you talked to your mom or anybody in your family and almost always Mm -hmm. there's somebody they're like oh yeah but yes they weren't told that we didn't even know what this was at that point in time wow thank you so much for sharing your story this has been so helpful just to hear about your own experiences and also just have a better understanding of what endometriosis is in general just hear how it's such like a complex disease that's so multifaceted and how there's such like under it's so underrepresented women plus is research so it's really really great to hear about it from your own perspective and i'm really curious to hear how you've been dealing with it now that you've gotten a more clear understanding of what what's going on with your own body and if the medical community has sort of been able to help with providing like comprehensive care plans or if they really have been supporting you in any way? So now I know what I know and I've watched out for things and I, my endo did come back. It was after a period of significant inflammation. Then following, I had some of the symptoms come back. Uh, I found an amazing OBGYN here in San Diego that takes insurance because most endo surgeons that really know endo don't, they don't take Mm. insurance and your surgery can Mm. be very expensive. There are a few that do. She is one of them and she, I call her my unicorn. She's amazing. (laughs) She did a pelvic exam and said, I feel something in there. It could be scar tissue from your last surgery, but it could be some regrowth and considering your symptoms. Let's do a workup. I also at that point thought I had potentially had thoracic endo. I was getting this kind of crazy neck and arm pain that was pretty specific to my cycle. And I, this is my first year I was off any birth control as well, but I was having like the best periods one could ask for. A lot of people don't have painful periods. It is very common. One of the Mm -hmm. most common manifestations of endometriosis is severely painful periods. But what I was noticing is I kept thinking I was getting COVID because I work in Mm -hmm. healthcare and I had a ton of exposures. So At that point, we didn't have the home test, so I had to make an appointment. So when I looked back, 
every time I went to go get tested, it was the same part of my menstrual cycle. That's mm. so interesting. And, mm. and I'm, it's like, I'm so glad you were tracking that because who would have known, right? Who would have paired those connections together? Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Cause I had, I used flow mm -hmm. period tracker, but I, I knew my period was every 27, 28 days. And I just literally pulled up the receipts of my payments to the, to the lab when I got it. And it was either right at ovulation or right, like two to two days before my period. And the symptoms I was having, I started feeling like I was getting mm -hmm. sick, like a low grade mm -hmm. fever, a cough. Even sometimes I would have like green phlegm, but for 24, 36 hours. And then it was gone. So interesting. Mm. Wild. And that's not like, you know, or let me rephrase that. That's not one of the symptoms that you'll see come up with like a flow tracker or are these apps that are like, oh, check the box if you have cramps or you're feeling moody today. Right. Like those things aren't listed as even possibilities. Mm. And so for someone, you know, who may not have been as in tune to this as much as you were like you wouldn't even put those pieces together totally. at all totally it was because i was having an episode right. similar to the one that led me to the hospital without the abdominal mm -hmm. pain but that spike in fever the chills this kind of uti feeling and this time i knew better because i knew i was just it was a waste to go to the er because they oh everything's mm -hmm. normal like you just wish mm -hmm. that something somebody would find something right. at that point right. because you're you like, need an I'm answer crazy person yeah, I did end up going to urgent care during that time. And I remember the doctor, he, he was very nice. And I think he was very well intentioned. I did put this in their survey. At the end, he looked at me like, so I know when I've had, you know, some anxiety. At that Shut point, I was up. like, Come on. I'm out of here. Male doctor. I know what I, yes. I'm 35 years old. Good God. <laughs> I I knew he was well-intentioned, but I was like, you cannot say that to somebody. Wow. And yeah. kind of just segueing from all of these experiences and the real kind of medical hardships you've had to go through over the span of your life from when you started your period, what advice might you give to someone who may have endometriosis or may suspect that they have endometriosis? Is there anything um, for anyone who's listening now or may listen in the future? Um, what advice would you have for them? Be your own advocate and keep going if you don't feel intuitively that the answers you are being given fit the problem. Mm. I will say that my patients with endometriosis and those in the community that I know they are probably more knowledgeable about this disease than the majority of healthcare providers out there because they have to. Wow. So speaking to the, the, the website that you had put up there for the source, the reason I had mentioned, you know, it's not really the best source is, is that there was something on there that said mostly manifests in your thirties to forties. Mm -hmm. It does not manifest in your 30s to 40s. It's finally probably diagnosed in their 30 and 40s because of the significant delay of diagnosis. But there are symptoms and signs even before many start their menstrual cycle. Eight, nine years old, when estrogen starts to be produced, right. breast buds, that's oftentimes where you, if you ask the right questions, that's when it started. 
And just to put this in context for our listeners, this was a website that I had just, you know, was doing some research on and then Jandra pointed out that it was a really inaccurate source. This is the office on womenshealth.gov. This is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This isn't some like run-of-the-mill, weird little Google thing I found. This is like (laughs) the U.S. Office of Women's Health. What? And they're probably one of the more inaccurate sources out there. Welcome to Endo. <sighs> wow. There's a few other things and I know I know exactly the study that they're referencing when they when they say this. They put some correlation, you know, you are at higher risk of endo. I think it said if you started your menstrual cycle early, haven't had children, certain things like that. And the thought process there is that you have more cycles that you're ovulating and having a menstrual period where like birth control or pregnancy, you've stopped ovulating. And so there's less reasons why maybe things go right. It's just not true. Mm -hmm. And that's another myth is doctors will say this happened just a couple years ago. The last time I heard this to a patient of mine who has endo, just get pregnant. You'll, it'll heal your endo. And, Many people feel better because it's a time where progesterone is very rampant, but it does not stop the disease. Some people do feel better after, and that is great for them. That disease is still in there. Uh, Just get pregnant. Like, it's so easy. Or (laughs) wanted. Do you want to get pregnant? So many complications that have to go. What kind of solution is that? Right. Yeah. The other thing I'll share, which is what you had asked me earlier, Kate, is painful periods are never normal. It is one of the most common clinical manifestations of endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Infertility is probably the other more common one. And of course, there's many reasons that one may have infertility issues, but about 50% of those with sort of unknown fertility issues, it Mm -hmm. is endo. And those patients may not have some of the other classic symptoms like painful periods or inflammation. It may be their only symptom. Wow. Yeah. So crazy. (laughs) This has been, yeah, it's just, it's so, so much, (laughs) Um, but it's been so phenomenal. Like hearing your story, thank you for being so open with us and just giving us kind of the beginning to end, uh, at least summary and, um, overview of what you've gone through, just if this hopefully can help someone that has gone through something similar or suspects something similar. That's like our, our main goal is to just get all of this information out there and make sure people feel comfortable and confident advocating for themselves. Well, I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate you starting this podcast. And I think you hit on it in every episode where you say it's just about having conversations. Yes, absolutely. It spreads. Even to somebody who may have been very frustrated about going through whatever it is, infertility, dismissal, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, when they start to talk to other people, you start to see like that passion of wanting to advocate and wanting to make this right in some way. And so conversations are enormously helpful to raise awareness and it is where it needs to start. Yes. So we just really appreciate it and feel so invigorated by this conversation. And 
for our listeners, if you would like to keep up with Jandra, please feel free to follow her um, on Instagram at Pelvic Health SD or listening to her podcast, which is called I Care Better Endometriosis Unplugged, um, as we continue these conversations. And it's really a chain reaction that once one person knows, the next person knows, and hopefully we can get to someone who really needs mm. the help. Yes. Well, you you guys are the generation that will probably really make big changes too. going into med school. That's where it needs to start. It right. needs to start with, with where you are at. So you are going to do some amazing <laughs> Thank things. <you. laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, just to close out, I want to thank you again and echo all the sentiments that have been said. I feel like I, I'm so much more knowledgeable of endometriosis after this conversation and like just from things that I probably wouldn't have learned just from like looking at looking it up online. So thank you so much. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And today we had an incredible conversation with Jandra about all things endometriosis and Women Plus's health. To wrap things up, make sure to follow us on Instagram at lotus.health.app and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to be notified when the next one is released. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank Bye. you. <laughs> Bye.